All right, good morning once again. If you're new with us, welcome. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 12? Again, if you're new with us, just to let you know, we are working our way through John 12 here at Calvary on Sunday morning. Now, before we look at chapter 12, keep in mind that the events of chapter 11 really helped to set in motion much of what goes on in chapter 12. Of course, as we studied chapter 11, we learned that, or this, the chapter deals with the death and resurrection of Lazarus. It was the resurrection of Lazarus by Jesus that really began to heat up kingdom fever in the hearts of the Jewish people. As news spread like wildfire, Jesus of Nazareth just raised the guy who was dead for four days. He must be the Messiah. The kingdom of God is here, kind of a thing, all right? And so the emotion and excitement in the hearts of the people in chapter 11 began to build, and by the time you come to chapter 12, it's reached fever pitch, as chapter 12 opens up six days before the Passover. Now, last week in our study of John's Gospel, we finished a two-part message I entitled, The Fragrance of Worship, The Fragrance of Worship, as we looked at John 12, verses 1 to 8 and Mary's act of true worship in anointing Jesus for burial. That brings us to verse 9. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and of course the there is in Bethany, verse 1 tells us of chapter 12. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, you know, also Jesus and Lazarus, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So poor Lazarus can't get a, get a break. First of all, some strange disease kills him. The Lord raises him after four days, and now the chief priests are after him. I would imagine they eventually did kill him because uh, they couldn't have him walking around being such a powerful witness for Jesus, right? Poor guy can't get a break. But, but let me just stop here and remind you of something, that as we come to John 12, we enter into the final week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. This is a week that many refer to as Passion Week. Passion Week. Passion Week begins with his triumphal entry and culminates with his resurrection on Easter Sunday, or as I like to refer to it, on Resurrection Sunday a week later. In order for us to get a more complete understanding of the events of this day, I'm going to cut back and forth between John's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel to get a kind of composite look at this story. Let me begin by drawing your attention back to chapter 12 of John's Gospel, verse 1, which reads, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was who had been dead whom he had raised from the dead. Now, from the timeline of John's gospel, it seems that Jesus came to Bethany, as we are told, six days before the Passover, sometime Friday afternoon. Sometime Friday afternoon. When the sun went down, it became their Saturday. Our sun, Friday evening, but their Saturday, because the Jews were on a lunar calendar, still are, by the way, uh, so the new day starts at sundown. So Jesus comes there Friday afternoon, then sundown, now it's Saturday, and this seems to be the day that Mary took the uh, 
fragrant oil of spikenard and anointed Jesus for burial. Again, their Saturday, our Friday uh, evening. John 12, verse 12 says, The next day a great multitude that had uh, come to the feast, and I'll stop you there. So this next day would then have been Sunday, the 10th of the Jewish month of Nisan. Nisan. Nisan corresponds to our late March, early April, depending on, you know, how our days move around a little bit, uh, you know, but uh, not move around, but, uh, you know, like Easter, sometimes it's celebrated at the end of March, sometimes uh, in the beginning of April. Um, that's kind of how it was. The 10th of their month, Nisan, uh, corresponded to our end of March, beginning of April. Uh, it was Sunday, though, the day we recognize as Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday. John 12, verse 12, the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard Jesus was coming from Jerusalem. Now, I should have you turn over to Matthew 21 and keep your finger there so you can go back and forth, okay? Because Matthew 21, verse 1 says, it, in correlation to what we just read in John's gospel, now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to, and this is often pronounced Beth Page, that's incorrect, the Greek is literally Bethphage, okay? You can call it Bethpage if you want because it sounds kind of dumb calling it Bethphage, but that's how they pronounced it. Uh, but Matthew tells us, guys, so they, so they drew near to, to Jerusalem, came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Matthew tells us in Matthew 20, verse 29, that they were traveling from Jericho. They had been in Jericho. And now they are moving up the Jericho Road to Jerusalem. And as they did, they came to the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, where the towns of Bethany and Bethphage were located. Again, Matthew 21, verse 1. So as they came to, uh, to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now, folks, I don't see any point in making this a miracle. I mean, some do. I just don't see it's reading into this a miracle is necessary, okay? I believe that when Jesus was in Jerusalem on his last visit, he uh, made arrangements with a friend, probably one of his disciples, somebody that was um, for him, you know, that supported his ministry, made uh, arrangements with a friend to, to use two of his donkeys, a mother and her colt, the next time he came to the city. I believe Jesus told this man that he would send a couple of disciples, of his disciples at one point to come and get the donkeys. And if the owner of the donkeys, they, he would know if they were Jesus' disciples because when he challenged them for untying his donkeys, you know, what are you doing loosening the, the, the donkeys, you know? Jesus said, I'll have him say to you, the Lord has need of him, of them. And that will be our little code for, they're with me, send the donkeys, okay? And some people think that, you know, when the disciples went and started untying the guy's donkeys, you know, and the guy's like, what are you doing untying my donkeys? That, you know, they said, uh, the Lord has need of him, and his eyes glazed over, and he's like, okay, you know, it's like he became a robot or something. No, I, I don't think that's what happened. I think Jesus had set this whole thing up, okay? Um, but verse 4 of Matthew 21, 
All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly, and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now John records this in chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. As we mentioned in our study of Matthew's gospel a few years ago, Matthew was a Jew. He was a Levite, actually. And um, he was a Jew who wrote his gospel primarily to the Jewish people to present to them Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah and King and to prove to his Jewish audience that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah of Israel, the one whose coming was foretold in the Jewish scriptures. He quotes 16 Old Testament messianic prophecies of Messiah, each of them after Jesus did something significant, um, some kind of a work or a miracle. And then he would quote, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, 16 times, maybe 17, I, I think it's like 16 times for sure, that he said this, and it was Matthew's way of proving that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies which were spoken in the Old Testament uh, by the prophets concerning Messiah's coming, and thus authenticating Jesus, Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. The prophecy that Matthew quotes in Matthew 21, verse 5, comes out of Zechariah 9, verse 9, which literally reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, the Jewish people were very familiar with this prophecy. Uh, they were uh, very familiar with a lot of the Messianic prophecies because they were always looking for the Messiah. That was because they, they wanted Messiah to come and establish his kingdom and get them out of this mess that the Gentiles had created, kind of a thing, okay? And so they were always looking for uh, the Messiah, and uh, this was God's way of saying, you will know him, he will come riding into your city on a donkey. That was unusual. Kings usually didn't ride on donkeys. They rode on, you know, chargers, white horses. But um, this would be unusual. That's how they would know this was, in fact, the Jewish Messiah, the king. Matthew 21, verse 6. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him, Jesus, on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches. John tells us they were palm branches from the trees and spread them on the road. In fact, uh, it says in John 12, verse 13, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Again, guys, this was the 10th day of the Jewish month of Nisan. We call it Palm Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday because it was on this day as Jesus was en route to Jerusalem to make his triumphal entry into the city, as he was riding up the Mount of Olives, his disciples were laying palm branches in front of him, and they were standing on either side of the road waving palm branches and celebrate, cheering, celebrating his coming, because now the Messiah had come. However, before this day became significant, became 
became significant among Christians around the world this Palm Sunday. It was an especially important day in the history of the Jewish people back then. You see, it was a day the Jews had been waiting for for 1,500 years at least, uh, back to the days of, of Moses. But mankind in general had been waiting for, for 4,000 years. Ever since man blew it in the Garden of Eden and fell, ate the forbidden fruit and fell, uh, became a fallen sinner, God promised back in Genesis 3.15 that someday he would send a redeemer, a deliverer, through the seed of the woman, spoke, speaking of the virgin birth, that this deliverer would come and crush the serpent's head, defeat Satan's authority who had taken control of the world now, because Adam and Eve had handed it over to the devil, uh, who became the world's new owner, man's new master. But someday God was going to send a deliverer who would right the wrongs man had done, take the world back from the hands and control of Satan, and establish a kingdom. This is what they were waiting for. Uh, mankind was waiting, was waiting for. So it was a special day. It was a special day. Because it, for no other reason it was special, it was a day, the only day, in the ministry of Jesus that he accepted the cries of the Jewish people to make him their king. Now you remember as you read the Gospels, uh, there was at least once, maybe two times, when he did something spectacular. I remember the one time he fed them, and so that was it. Uh, this guy, we got to make this guy the Messiah. We got to make him our king. I mean, he can feed us with little amounts of food. You know, I get hungry a lot. I mean, it would be great not to have to work in the fields and labor and to grow stuff. Just come to Jesus with a few scraps. He'll multiply it into a great feast. So they tried to take him by force and make him king. But he always slipped away out of their midst and, and went his way. Why? Because he said, my time has not yet come. Well, folks, his time had come now. Okay? My time has not yet come. His time had come. In fact, this was the only day... And think about it. Why was it on this day? When, when he had rejected every other attempt by the people to make him king, why was it that on this day he not only accepted the cries of the people to make him king, he actually, listen, planned, promoted, and now participated in this public demonstration to make him king? Why? Well, because the time had come to fulfill one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible. That's why. You see, 600 years earlier, God gave one of the most important prophecies in the scriptures to Daniel. While Daniel was living in Babylon during the Babylonian captivity, a prophecy that indicated the exact day Messiah would come and present himself to the nation. You know, you have to turn there because we don't have time to get into Daniel's. Now, you can go online and listen to Daniel 9 if you like. But according to the prophecy given in, to Daniel, Daniel 9, I'm thinking verse 25 now in particular, God told Daniel that from the time the commandment would go forth to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah the King would be 483 years. Sir Robert Anderson, in his classic work, the, the Coming Prince, does a masterful job researching this and tells us that the commandment went forth to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. It went forth from King Artaxerxes to Nehemiah on March 14, 445 B.C. 
And because Daniel was prophesying during the Babylonian era, and they were using the Babylonian calendar of 360 days per year, if you times 483 years by 360 days a year, it equals 173,880 days. If you add that number of days to March 14, 445 B.C., adjusting for leap years and taking into consideration there's no year zero, it brings you out to April 6, 32 A.D., the day we call Palm Sunday. April 6, 32 A.D., on the Julian calendar. That is the day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, presenting himself to the nation as their long-awaited Messiah and King. But this was also a special day for another reason. We know that Jesus was crucified on Passover, which fell on the 14th of the month of the Jewish month of, of uh, Nisan, uh, on the Jewish calendar. On the 10th of Nisan, the lambs that were to be killed for the Passover celebration had to be presented to the priest in Jerusalem where they would be carefully inspected for four days. The priest would watch each lamb closely. From the 10th to the 14th of the month of Nisan in order to ensure that it was in the best of health and that it was without spot or blemish, in other words, without any birth defects or acquired scars or flaws like, uh, uh, like a scar from being chewed up by an animal or, uh, for a while before it was rescued or some broken bones if it fell down a ravine. Or it had to be without spot and blemish, God's way of saying it had to be perfect. You couldn't give God junk. You couldn't give God roadkill, Okay. Uh, a lion grabbed this poor thing and chewed it up and things on its last leg and you quickly, what are we going to do? It's going to die soon. Let's run it down to the temple. Give it to God. We can't use it anymore. No, the guy said, I don't want your, your junk. You got to give them your best. Okay? Your best. Now, guys, in the law, God had mandated that there must be a minimum of 10 people for each lamb eaten for the Passover. During the Passover... Uh, during Passover time, the city of Israel, excuse me, in Israel, the city of Jerusalem and its suburbs were crowded with pilgrims that had come from all over the known world to celebrate this, their most special national feast, Passover. Thirty years after the time of Jesus' crucifixion, the Roman government wanted to take a census to find out just how many people actually came to Jerusalem for the Passover each year. Well, they knew the Jewish law that mandated that you had to have a minimum of 10 people eating from one lamb. So Rome figured it was easier to count the lambs than to count the people that ate the lambs. So they started counting lambs that year, and they counted 250,000 lambs that were eventually slaughtered for the Passover that year, which meant there was in town, in Jerusalem and its suburbs, Roughly two and a half million people that came for Passover that year and probably were coming every year. Roughly two and a half million in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now you're probably sitting there thinking, why are you going through all this? What? Do I need to know this? Well, it wouldn't hurt you. 
I mean, you know, don't be a dumb Christian. Be a smart Christian, okay? I labor very hard to give you this information. You're going to sit there and ask me, what do I need this, you know? Why am I going through all this? Because I want you to try to picture this in your mind's eye. I want you to picture this in your mind's eye. On this day, there were thousands and tens of thousands of lambs being brought into the city from all directions, all directions, where they would remain and undergo four days of rigorous inspection before they were pronounced perfect without spot or blemish and therefore worthy to be sacrificed on the feast of Passover. Of course, these lambs would be sacrificed to remind the people of Israel how the blood of those first Passover lambs some 1,500 years earlier had delivered their forefathers and foremothers from the judgment of God coming upon Egypt. Remember the death of the firstborn. And here among all these lambs, again, thousands and thousands of lambs coming to Jerusalem to be sacrificed, we see another lamb making his way to the city. Of course, this was the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, who presented himself to the chief priest on that Palm Sunday. And then for the next four days, up until he was crucified, he was in the temple every day teaching, allowing them to inspect him. At the end of those four days, leading up to Passover, they of their own mouths admitted, we find no fault in this man. If we're going to have him executed for you know crimes we're going to have to find people to make up stuff because he's innocent of anything we can pin on him well they eventually turn him over to Pilate and after Pilate rigorously examined Jesus you can read about this in John 18 verse 38 chapter 19 verses 4 and 6 Pilate himself made the declaration I find no fault in this man at all but because he was pressured by the people, he still turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. After being declared sinless, without spot and blemish, he, Jesus, as the Lamb of God, was then sacrificed on Calvary's cross. And so now when a person applies the blood of Jesus Christ to their lives by faith, he becomes their Passover lamb. Paul tells us, tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Jesus Christ, our Passover, was crucified for us. What do you mean he becomes their Passover lamb? In the sense that his shed blood atones for their sins, and he becomes their Passover lamb in the sense that the coming judgment of God, God is going to bring judgment upon this world. Uh, Egypt is a type of the world. That judgment God brought upon Egypt uh, was looking forward to another judgment, a worldwide judgment. The blood of the lamb literally, the literal lamb back in those days, spared anyone who would put that blood on the doorpost and lintel of their house with a hyssop branch. You try that. Dip a hyssop branch or some other branch in some red liquid, and then strike, God said, not dab, strike, he said, the doorposts and lintel of the house and see what sign that forms on your door. All looking forward to Jesus and the cross. 
And anyone who would take the blood of Christ shed on Calvary's cross and apply it to their life by faith, the judgment of God will pass over them. As Jesus put it in John 5, we pass from death to life. Back in Matthew's Gospel, 21 verse, well, let's, um, now verse 6. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkeys and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set Jesus on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. John records in John 12, verse 13, they said the same thing. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The King of Israel has, is here. That's what they're cheering. Jesus' disciples were quoting from Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm announcing Messiah's coming. Hosanna in Hebrew literally means save now. They were shouting, save now, save now. Hosanna, Hosanna, or as the Jews pronounce it, Hoshana. Hoshana. We, we go over there and sing Hosanna, and they laugh at us. It's Hoshana. Gentiles, then Hosanna, whatever, whatever, save now, I don't care, okay? So this psalm they were crying out, again, Psalm 118 is a prophetic psalm of Messiah's coming. The prophetic part begins in verse 22 of Psalm 118, which reads, the stone which the builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Yes, someday when the you know, church was born. He's the chief cornerstone and so on. Then verse 24 declares, this is, listen, the day. Don't miss it. This is the day, the day they were all waiting for for so many years. The day that the Lord has made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Guys, this was the day God had established for the presentation of Messiah to the nation. The one promised by God all the way back in Genesis 3.15 and prophesied about for centuries in the Holy Scriptures. Psalm, 20, Psalm 118 continues in verse 27. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. So Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm which is prophetic of Messiah presenting himself to the nation, but being rejected and then ultimately becoming our sacrifice for sin. In the prophecy in Daniel that we talked about earlier, which predicts the exact day Messiah would come presenting himself as king, the prophecy goes on to say that Messiah would be cut off. That's Daniel 9, verse 26. The Hebrew is karat. It means to be executed for a capital offense. But then quickly adds, but not for himself. Messiah would be cut off, executed for a capital offense, but not for himself. In other words, he would be innocent. He would be innocent. But he still died. Not for himself, but for who? Well, I think we know, don't we? He was executed for us. He died in our place. 
And when he hung on that cross, the Father laid on the sons on the Son the sins of us all. Isaiah 53, verse 5. Or verse 6. Isaiah 53, verse 6. It's interesting that when Matthew quotes the prophecy of Zechariah 9, verse 9, he leaves out the beginning, which reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Daughter of Zion would be the nation of Israel. He leaves that out. Why does he leave that out? Because the first time Jesus came, the nation wouldn't be cheering our Messiah here. Rejoice! The kingdom is here. They wouldn't receive him. We're reading about it right now. I mean, the disciples were excited. They were shouting, save now, save now. They believed Jesus was the Messiah. But the Jewish leadership, the scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, and so on, they had all rejected Jesus. The nation was not, as a whole, was not receiving him. So at his first coming, they weren't going to rejoice. The king has come. That would be on his second coming. Where all of us that are believers would rejoice at his coming. And where the nation of Israel would see him come through the clouds. And they would rejoice. And they would begin to celebrate. Because he's coming and this time he's going to establish the kingdom. Again, we know that national leaders of Israel, the religious leaders, they had rejected Christ. How do we know that? How do we know they rejected? They were trying to kill him. I think that's a, we could assume that they had rejected. They're trying to kill him, right? Why didn't they get it? Why, why didn't they under? They were seems like they were caught off guard. Well, maybe they were ignorant of the prophecies in Daniel. I doubt that. I doubt that. I think it was that they were so blinded by their hatred of Jesus, they forgot about it or refused to even acknowledge it connected to him. All right? Either way, they did not understand the significance and importance of this day to the nation. Meanwhile, inside the city, there was a mixture of excitement and bewilderment as to his identity. Who is this? Well, Matthew 21, verse 10 says, and when he, Jesus, had come into, the, into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, folks, that tells us that many people, many people, understood that Jesus was a great prophet, that he was a prophet from Nazareth. I believe if they believed in him at all, for most Jews, that's where it ended. That, that's where it ended. I think very few understood. His disciples did. Uh, you know, the women did, like Mary and so on. I think most of the Jews back then believed he was a prophet. And now that he raised somebody who was dead for four days, a great prophet on the level of Elijah or Elisha. What they were missing was that he was the Messiah. They were blind to his identity in that regard. The Messiah... Uh, son of God, Savior of the world, I think that, that was not in their thinking. And John records that even Jesus' own disciples were a little, to put it politely, disconnected. These guys were a little disconnected in general. But a little disconnected from fully understanding the events that were unfolding before their eyes on that day. Uh, we read in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 16. 
His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, when he was risen from the dead, then they remembered that these things were written about him uh, and that they had done these things to him. After Jesus was glorified and they were filled with the Spirit, right? They started reading the Word again and realized, wait a minute, this was all foretold and we participated in it. We didn't know that when we first were doing it. Isn't that neat when God uses you? And I'm not saying you're in the Bible. I'm just when God uses you. You know, you bump into somebody, you, on some errand, you bump into somebody you hadn't seen in years, and a conversation breaks out, and all of a sudden you're witnessing, and they get saved, and you look back and go, you know what, I wasn't even planning to go this way or stop here, but I, for, it was all God. God used it. It's great to feel that, isn't it? To know that God has used you. Even when, somebody has said God leads us supernaturally in natural ways. Where it's supernatural, we don't even, it's so natural, we don't even realize it, right? Now listen, I want you to understand. One author said something I think is important. I want to share it with you. Uh, but one author uh, said that this confusion among the multitudes about who Jesus really was, uh, including those that had already written him off, rejected him as Messiah of Israel, this idea was not held by all the Jews in Jerusalem on that day. He writes this, and I quote, he says, Here we see the disciples of Jesus crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, to him as he rides up the Mount of Olives. By this time, word has reached Jerusalem that Jesus was coming, and so something interesting happened. That mob of people coming from Bethany is joined by another mob that came surging out of the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem, and like two great tides flowing together to make one sea, a mass of humanity now surrounds Jesus all of them waving palm branches and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Everyone is beside themselves with emotion and excitement. He said, can you imagine the electricity of this moment? The Jews had waited thousands of years for this day as their Messiah had finally come, end quote. And yet, how did Jesus respond to all this emotion and excitement directed towards him? Well, as he reached the top of the Mount of Olives and saw the city of Jerusalem laid out before him, he began to weep. Luke records in Luke 19, verse 41, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, we keep hearing the word day, a very specific day, if you had only known, even you Jews, this was given to you, this prophecy. Especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Why did he weep? I mean, wasn't this the day he had waited for? The people were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, I mean, save now, save now. They were hailing him as the Messiah. What was the problem? Well, first of all, Jesus knew that they were concerned only for their physical needs and desires. That was it. Like many today. So many people today go to church. Why do they go to church? Because they love Jesus and really believe in him. No, a lot of people go to church to make Jesus happy, you know, to, to appease God. 
because they're really looking for God to do something for them, right? They have a need. And it's not wrong to come together with a need. It, it's the hypocrisy of coming to God when you really don't love him, don't really want to hear what he has to say, but you come to church because, you know, you're trying to butter God up. You know, if I'm nice to God, go to church. He'll be nice to me and give me what I need. You'd be surprised how many people come to church. I'm convinced most, if not all of them, are unbelievers who call themselves Christians but have never really received Jesus into their heart as an Lord and Savior. But these folks are just consumed with their physical needs. You know, the Jewish people were looking for a political Messiah. That's who they were looking for. They weren't really looking for a spiritual Savior at all. And Jesus knew that. He knew these people weren't accepting him as the Messiah he truly was or the Savior he came to be. He knew that. For most of them, not all. Now, much of their acknowledgement of him as their Messiah was nothing more than emotion fueled by carnal desires and not by true repentance and acceptance of him as their spiritual Savior who had come to save them from their sins. Their cries to Jesus, save now, save now, Hosanna, were cries to save them from Roman oppression and occupation, from poverty and sickness, not come save me from my sins jesus that's not what it was and jesus knew that this crowd for all intents and purposes had rejected him just as surely as the scribes and pharisees and chief priests had rejected him they rejected him out of hostility these rejected the true jesus in favor of a jesus of their own making an artificial Jesus, a counterfeit Jesus. We can read about that Jesus in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. A lot of people still have that concept of Jesus. Their concept of Jesus is not one who saves them from their sins. It's a Jesus that's going to save them from all the problems and heartaches and aches and pains of life. You might be thinking, even if they didn't know the prophecy of Daniel 9, um, I'm not sure if I skipped ahead. Sometimes I get going and I skip ahead. Let me back up a little bit so I make sure I don't miss anything, okay? Let me read again Luke 19. So Jesus is coming up to the top of the Mount of Olives. His disciples are crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Jesus gets to the top. If you ever stood in the top of the Mount of Olives, you know that the Sea of Jerusalem is laid out right in front of you. It's down a little bit, laid out right in front of you. There's just a street today that separates the Mount of Olives from the city of Jerusalem. Back then, of course, the street wasn't there. It was probably a pathway. But Jesus comes to the top of the Mount of Olives, looks down and sees the city of Jerusalem in front of him. He said, you know, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time, some translations say, the day. You did not know the day of your visitation. You see, Jesus looked ahead. His heart was broken because he knew they had rejected him for all intents and purposes. A little handful of disciples had received him. 
But for the most part, the nation had rejected him. And he knew, looking ahead, he knew what was coming. He saw a terrible judgment coming upon the nation, the city, and the temple. In A.D. 70, the Romans would come, surround the city of Jerusalem, and lay siege, and after a siege of 143 days, would kill 600,000 Jews, take thousands more captive, and then destroy the temple and the city. Why did all of this happen? It happened because, as Jesus said in Luke 19.44, the Jewish people did not know the time or the day of their visitation. They did not know the day that God had prophesied about so many centuries earlier in the book of Daniel, our chapter 9, the day Messiah would present himself to the nation. In other words, Jesus Christ, God Almighty, held the Jewish people accountable for not knowing prophecy. Wow, I tell you what, there is a lot of churches today that fall into this very trap. I have heard pastors say, we don't teach prophecy in our church. Well, why not? 27% of the Bible is prophecy. You don't teach prophecy over a quarter of the Bible you're neglecting. Well, we don't teach it because it's too controversial. It makes people uncomfortable, right? One pastor, well-known pastor said, uh, I encourage pastors not to teach prophecy. It gets people with a pie-in-the-sky mentality. They're looking for the kingdom that's coming, Jesus' return, and there's work to do right now. You make them so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good, he said. Folks, can I tell you, if you're not heavenly-minded, you are no earthly good? There's a lot of churches that are not teaching prophecy. Jesus held Israel account, the Jewish people, they're that was their scriptures. For not knowing and understanding prophecy. Don't, do you understand the book of Revelation opens up with those very words? There is a special blessing that will come upon each who read, understand, and apply these things written in this book into their lives. How do you apply it? You get ready. You prepare. Apparently the Lord thought prophecy was pretty important. And Jesus is holding these people accountable for not knowing the day that God had told them the Messiah was coming. If they had known that day and, and believed it with all their heart, they would have received their king. He would have established the kingdom. And we would not be in existence. So I'm glad they rejected him. All right? Because, you know, God had plans to bring a lot of others into the family of God. But again, you might be thinking, okay, well, even if they didn't know the prophecy of Daniel 9. They still had Jesus with them every day declaring him to be their savior. Why did they reject? Why did somebody reject him as their savior? Let me say this and we'll close, all right? They rejected Jesus as their savior back then for the same reason Jesus, people reject Jesus as their savior today. They're not looking for a savior to save them from their sins. People today, for the most part, don't even think of themselves as sinners. Think about that, right? It's all relativism. There's no absolute truth. It's relative. Therefore, if what is good for uh, what is uh, good for you is, is your truth. What is what is good for you is your truth. Whatever you know, whatever you feel is is truth. That's that's your truth. So if you feel that you know, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, gay marriage or abortion, if that's good in your eyes, that's your truth. Nobody can tell you it's evil. It's wrong. Well, God does, but okay, today it's relative. All right. So people today don't want to hear about a 
Savior that saves them from their sins. Uh, talk about a Savior that saves them from poverty, uh, that saves them from global warming, that saves them from a number of other pet issues, right? Um, did I mention, you know, nature and, and, uh, and, and ecology and all that? There are churches that present a Jesus like that. I've heard pastors say that Jesus is the quintessential environmentalist. No, he's not. No, he's not. He didn't come to save the planet. He came to save the people on the planet. Come study Revelation with us. Planet Earth is terminal. It's going to be destroyed. He's going to create a new one. New heavens, new earth. We're going to all live in a city called New Jerusalem. But this present world is terminal. Okay? But again, people today don't want to hear about a Savior that saves them from sins. They don't even believe they are sinners. You're never going to believe you need a Savior if you don't think you're a sinner, right? Others are so caught up in the daily cares of their lives that they are oblivious to the reality that he is coming again to judge the world. Some of these people grew up in church. But they're so busy with their daily routines, their schedules, that they're kind of oblivious to the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again to judge this world and is offering everyone right now an opportunity to repent, accept him as their Savior, and apply his blood to their life, which if they do will cause the judgment of God to pass over them. Remember, guys, Jesus indicted the people of his day for not knowing the signs that pointed to his first coming. What about the signs, our generation, what about the signs that point in his word to his second coming? Do you realize there are 333 prophecies in the Old Testament of Jesus' first coming? And there's over 500 in the scriptures of his second coming. Now listen to me. If those 333 prophecies that foretold of his first coming came to pass with flawless 100% um, um, What's the word I'm looking for? One, accuracy. Then why would anybody think that those 500 prophecies coming, you know, predicting his second coming won't come to pass with that same 100% flawless accuracy? There's a lot of folks that just don't believe the, you know, you, you share with them prophecy. I, I, I don't really believe that. Or I'm going to wait and see. Really? I see. You're going to wait and see. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. If God is speaking to you this morning, if he's tugging on your heart, look, you know, might not make it till tomorrow. Today receive my son into your heart. Apply his blood to your life by faith. Become one of my children today. If God's tugging on your heart to do that, please listen and receive Jesus right now as your Lord and Savior before it's too late. Again, guys, tomorrow wasn't promised to anyone. I'm convinced that hell is going to be populated by people who went to church, who believed in Jesus with their heads, knew he was coming back, really did believe they needed him to go to heaven someday, but they thought they had time. That old... I think it was C.S. Lewis who was involved in it, where 
demons, uh, Satan has got a meeting in hell, and he's asking his demons what they can do to deceive people so that they go to hell. And this demon said that, that demon said something else, and a third demon said, I, I, why don't we tell men they have time? Satan says, brilliant, go. You will deceive men and destroy people by the millions. Because everybody thinks they have time. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know you're right. I went to Awanas. I grew up in church. I know. I need to get right with God. But I know I've got time. You don't know nothing. You don't know you've got time. Tomorrow was not promised to anyone. Today is the day of salvation. Receive Jesus right now. Be prepared. The king is coming, right? Again. And so we need to be ready. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would impress upon everyone the need to really get their hearts and lives right with you. Of course, unbelievers need to receive Jesus as their Savior. But we Christians, who Paul says many are asleep in the light, we need to wake up. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Lord, wake up your church. That your church would stop sleeping and start serving. That we go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. That the King is coming. Give us grace, Lord. Father, we thank you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.